Well, it's certainly good to be with you this evening, and uh, I pray, of course, that the things that I have prepared will be beneficial to the body of Christ this, after, or this evening. rather. I've written on the board our topic uh, for consideration this evening. We're going to talk a little bit about the great and the sweet power of prayer. When you talk about this idea or the subject of prayer, there are a great many verses of Scripture you can consider and a great many ideas that we can turn to in studying how we as Christians are to pray uh, and how we pray properly and how, uh, what the things are that we can pray for. But I've chosen these three passages of Scripture. We're going to take an expository look at them today and hopefully glean something from God's Word. First, we're going to look at uh, what John talks about that's praying with confidence and compassion. We're going to look at uh, the Hebrew writer's con uh, uh, thoughts concerning how we are to come boldly to the throne of grace, how we're to do that and why we should do that. And then we're going to end up in the book of James, where James gives us a call to both prayer and praise. But first, we're going to look at this passage here in 1 John, the fifth chapter. And I'll start by simply reading 1 John chapter 5, verses 14 through 17. The New King James translates, translates it this way. Now this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. If anyone sees a brother sinning a sin which does not lead to death, he will ask, and he will give him life for those who commit sin not leading to death. There is sin leading to death. I do not say that we should pray about that. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death. So as we rapidly approach the end of this epistle written by John, John gives us a few words on the subject of prayer. This is not the first time that John has mentioned prayer in his writings. Uh, John talks about uh, the value of confessing our sins, which is done in prayer over in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9. John talks about our advocate in prayer, Jesus Christ the righteous, over in chapter 2 and verse 1. And John also talks about one reason why we receive what we ask for in prayer in chapter 3, verse 22. But in his final words on this subject, John does two things, I, I think, really here. He expands upon a theme in prayer that it's already introduced, which is praying with confidence. But he also brings in another theme that is really in harmony with much of John's writing in this first epistle, which is that of brotherly love, when he talks about praying with compassion as well. So we're going to look at these two separate ideas, starting first with praying with confidence. Firstly, praying with confidence requires asking according to God's will. This is the point that is emphasized in uh, verses 14 and 15. Confidence in, our, in prayer is not based on some assumption that whatever we ask for, we're going to get no matter what. Some may improperly conclude the words of Jesus over in John chapter 14 and verses 13 and 14. And we're going to turn and we're going to read the words of Jesus there. Over in John chapter 14, and we're going to read verses 13 through 14, as I said. Jesus says, uh, oh, that's chapter 13. Jesus says here, and whatever you ask in my Father's name, that I will do, that the, son, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. But even Jesus' own examples of prayer illustrate that the answer to prayer depends on whatever the thing is and if it is in harmony with God's will. Looking at examples of Jesus' prayer in Matthew 26 and verse 39 and also in verse 42 of the same chapter. 
Paul learned this same lesson when he prayed about his thorn in the flesh over in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 7 through 9 there. However, the more we learn about God's revealed will through the word of God, the more likely we are to pray according to his will. And that's really the crux of the position here that John, when he talks about praying with confidence and praying in accordance to God's will, we have to know God's will before we can pray in God's will. We have to know what it is by studying his word. And that is the, the main way that we understand and we, we gain knowledge of the will of God. That's by studying his word. And that's how we can pray in harmony with God's will. Another reason we can pray, or another way to pray with confidence, another requirement, is that of keeping God's commandments. This is stressed in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22, and I'll read that very quickly. 1 John chapter 3 verse 22 says, And whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So even if we're asking for something that's necessarily or normally would be found within the will of God, how can we as Christians expect to receive that thing that we're praying for if we're not living right? If we're not living right, even if we know the will of God, how is God going to give us those things which we require to live our, our, our daily lives here on this earth? It, it would be a, a contradiction to God, for God to grant those things uh, to people who are not living in accordance with his word. So another stipulation to pray with confidence it requires us to keep God's commandments. As Peter quoted from Proverbs, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12. The righteousness, of course, are those who do things that are pleasing in his sight, according to what we just read over in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 22. Especially in regard to believing in Jesus and loving the brethren, two commandments given to us, by John in the following verse where he said in chapter 3 where he says and this is the commandment that we should believe on the name of the son of Jesus Christ the son Jesus Christ and love one another and he gave us commandments another requirement i believe for praying with confidence it requires us to, to uh, requires uh, requires abiding in Jesus and his words abiding in us which of course go along with the things we've already mentioned this was taught by Jesus himself, recorded in, by John, in John chapter 15 and verse 7. This should also help to clarify any misunderstanding in that passage we read over in John chapter 14. We can't isolate that one separate quote by Jesus and assume that anything we ask for, we're going to get. Things must be done uh, in a proper fashion, and one of those uh, is abiding in Jesus and his words must abide in us. Confidence in prayer depends upon asking according to God's will. But if Jesus' words don't abide in us, well, how will we know God's will, of course, as we've already mentioned? Praying with compassion. The first idea in praying uh, with compassion is, of course, to pray for a brother. The epistle of John has been one uh, which has stressed brotherly love, as we've already mentioned. He told us that we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16. He said that if one sees a brother in need and shuts his heart from him, how does he love God? How does the love of God abide in him? 1 John chapter 3 and verse 17. So certainly then we should be willing and ready to pray for our brethren, especially when we see them sinning a sin. Un, not unto death. Okay, now this is a 
really a complex uh, statement here by John, one that uh, uh, required great study on my part to make sure that I had full understanding, but I'm pretty sure that I have a grasp on it. The difference of sinning a sin not unto death and sinning a sin unto death. Let me read a few uh, notes that I jotted down so that I'll read them uh, word for word so I don't mess them up. Uh, we have to consider the, the, the present tense of the verb here, which is sinning. Does sinning necessarily imply that the brother is still engaged in the sin? Well, I don't believe that it does. What is sin unto death versus, uh, uh, um, excuse me, okay, once again, I got to read it. Uh, does the present tense of the verb sinning necessarily imply that the brother is still engaged in the sin when we are not to pray for him? What is sin not unto death and sin unto death? What is meant by he will give him life? What conclusions, uh, uh, whatever conclusions we draw must be in harmony with other passages of scripture. So when you talk about the idea of sinning unto death and sinning not unto death, I believe there's really only one conclusion that you can come to. We know that sin, when it is fully grown, produces death. So what about sin that hasn't quite come to that full growth yet? Well, simply a sin that does not lead to death is a sin that has been repented of. A sin that does not lead to death is a sin that has been confessed by a brother or sister in Christ and has been repented of, but perhaps has not yet been forgiven. So when John tells us we are to pray for a brother who has sinned or is sinning or sins not unto death, that is to pray for one who has repented of that sin. Certainly, and John points out, how can we pray for a brother who is sinning a sin unto death? How can we pray for a brother who is still sinning? Well, that just wouldn't make any sense, would it? How could we pray for someone who is still engaged in that sinful act and expect them to be forgiven? That's just impossible. So when you talk about the idea of, in verse 17, when he says, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is sin not leading to death, I believe simply that it is a sin that has been repented of. Sin which does not produce or lead to death would therefore be sin repented of. Sin leading to death, producing spiritual death and separation from God would be a sin unrepented of. We cannot expect God to forgive one who refuses to repent. And as John writes with some understatement, I believe, I do not say that we should pray about that. And that's in verse, verse number 16. God will give him life, as quoted in verse 16. If the death in this passage is obvious spiritual death, it is natural to assume the life is spiritual life. The life which God will grant our penitent brother in answer to our prayers could also be described as forgiveness. When John says here that, 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 the, prayer, or that the sin that is not leading to death, which is a sin that has been repented of, is prayed about, the life that he is given is that life of forgiveness, that mercy from God, forgiveness of sins that Christians have after they've obeyed the gospel. This is the promise offered in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 to the child of God who penitently confesses his own sin in prayer, also offered in 1 John 5 verse 16 as we read, to the penitent brother when, when prayer is made on his behalf, by another member of the family of God. So one might ask, why bother to pray for a brother if his sins will be forgiven anyway, as taught in chapter 1 and verse 9? 
Well, one answer might be found in James chapter 5 and verse 16, which we're going to get to in a little bit, where James says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And more on that in just a little while. So in conclusion to this idea of praying with confidence and compassion, the privilege of prayer is a wonderful blessing. We know that. Especially, uh, especially when we do with confidence and with compassion. Are we fulfilling the requirements uh, to be able to pray with confidence? Are we abiding in Jesus? Are we letting his words abide in us? Are we keeping his commandments and doing the things pleasing in his sight? Asking according to God's will? Are we praying with compassion? Praying not only for ourselves, but for our brothers and sisters who are in need. Praying for brethren overtaken by sin, uh, but who's, uh, who have demonstrated that their sin is one that is not leading to death, that is, repented of. As we all need the fullness of God's blessings in our lives, let's make sure we encourage each other to do whatever we can to be able to pray with both confidence and compassion. We're going to turn over to the book of Hebrews now, and we're going to look at our second idea. Hebrews chapter 4, as written on the board, and we're going to read there verses 14 through 16. The Bible says in Hebrews, beginning in verse, chapter 4, verse 14, seeing, that, uh, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was at all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In our study of the book of Hebrews that we recently went through in our Wednesday night services, we saw many different themes talked about here. Uh, one of the main points was that the Jewish Christians remained steadfast and firm in their faith. They were encouraged not to make that same mistake that many of their ancestors made, which was departing from God. And his method of operation has been twofold, I believe both to illustrate the superiority of Jesus, which is a reoccurring theme in this book, i.e. his uh, superiority to the prophets, to angels, to Moses and the law of Moses, but also to exhort them to be faithful in the light of these comparisons. So when the Hebrew writer told them how much better it was with Jesus, he also told them, so let's be faithful to Jesus. Uh, some of these ideas can be looked at in Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4, where he said, give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard. He says to exhort one another daily in chapter 3, verse 12 through 14. And really, to put it in another way, we must remain faithful and diligent. And in our study of the word of God and in exhorting one another daily, uh, other things are necessary, like prayer, which we're going to talk about in chapter 4 here. The main thought of this passage, as we're going to look at, is to come boldly to the throne of grace. So what does it mean when he says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Well, what is the throne of grace? Well, this is simply another way of saying the throne of God. Other passages emphasize that God's throne is one of righteousness, justice, mercy, and truth. God is known for and is the source of these things. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16 emphasizes God's mercy uh, and benevolence to be found there. This expression, let us come, which is also translated as draw near, uh, this is a really one of a priestly 
uh, um, a priestly expression that was used in the book of Leviticus to, uh, to uh, tell the, uh, those of the Old Testament preachers how they were to approach God and to approach his throne. It denotes approaching God for worship and prayer, and it is used here, and it suggests that the priestly privileges of access to God, which under the old law, you, the only access to God you had were through the priests, this is something that is now available to everyone, to Christians everywhere. But now in Christ, we can all draw near to God in worship and prayer. This is something that we must do, as the Hebrew writer says, boldly. This word boldly means, literally translated, with confidence. Uh, from the Greek word parisia, which also means full story. In ancient Greece, it was used to describe the right of a citizen to speak his mind on any subject in a town assembly, according to Lightfoot. Only full citizens had this right. Slaves did not have the right to speak their mind as the citizens. And used here in the book of Hebrews, it stands for our freedom to approach God without hesitation, without inhibition, and of course is made possible by the blood of Jesus. So this, this passage speaks uh, of the wonderful privilege Christians have through prayer to approach God with full confidence again, which is in correlation with what John wrote, and of course it is important to utilize this privilege. Let's talk about a few reasons why we ought to come boldly to the throne of grace. Number one, we ought to come boldly to the throne of grace because we have been given that privilege to do so. Just as we have been given the privilege to worship God, we have been given the privilege, privilege to talk to him in prayer. Not everyone has this opportunity, as we know. During the period of the old laws we've already mentioned, only the high priest could enter the holiest of holies. Now that is something that has been made possible to, for all of us. And as Christians, we have our high priest to whom we can direct our prayers through, and all those in his church have access through prayer, according to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 6. We ought to come boldly to the throne of grace because we have yet to enter, quote, the rest that remains. As seen earlier in this chapter, there is still a promised rest for God's people. We need to fear and respect lest we come short of it. We need to be diligent, and this being true, we need as much mercy and grace as we can get along the way. We ought to come boldly to the throne of God because we need that mercy and grace that is only available through God. Because of the high priest that we have is another reason we should come boldly to the throne of grace. Uh, in Jesus, we have a great high priest, as this passage points out. We have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 24. Having ascended to the right hand of God, he has become higher than the heavens. In Jesus, we have a sympathetic high priest, verse 15. And this word sympathy, I love this. This word sympathy literally means to suffer with. We have a high priest who suffered just as we do. How can we not understand that there is a reason he is our high priest? There is a reason that Jesus is our high priest today. Because he suffered just as we do today. Even greater. And we have the ability to pray to God through him. The word sympathy, as I said, literally means to suffer with. The Greek word here suggests a real intensity, which is kind of lost in our English word sympathy. It's much more intense than a sympathy to suffer with. 
Uh, Westcott describes it as the feeling of one who enters into the suffering and makes it his own, who enters into our own suffering and makes it his own. Jesus' sympathy is due to being tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this qualifies him to be both, both merciful and faithful, uh, a merciful and faithful high priest, that is, one who is able to aid those who are tempted, according to Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 18. And with such a high priest interceding for us, we definitely need to take advantage of every opportunity we have in prayer uh, for this mercy and grace. As I mentioned earlier, we ought to come boldly to the throne of grace because of the mercy and the grace and grace that awaits us. Christians continue to need two things. No matter what, you know, no matter what state of, of, of your life you're in, no matter what your spiritual condition is, and no matter how you stand with God, you always need mercy and grace. Always. Those are two things that every Christian needs every day of our lives. Without mercy, how can we have the forgiveness that we have? Uh, for we do sin, and to deny, uh, to deny that we do, of course, is calling God a liar. Grace to help us in the time of need. But listen, uh, God's favor to help us in time of need is one of a providential protection. Divine strength, according to Romans chapter 8 and verse 13. The Christian finds these things in prayer uh, and in answers to prayer. By confessing our sins to God in prayer, there is mercy. 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 again. And by praying for strength from, God's, uh, for, for God, from God, there is grace to help us in time of need. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16 and verse 20. Listen, in conclusion to this portion of our study, we need to make sure that we are diligent in coming boldly to the throne of grace. A graceful God and a sympathetic high priest is, what's, is what awaits us. Mercy and grace to help us in time of need. And that means we must, as one translation puts it, draw near to God. Diligent study of the word is also something that helps us to come boldly, as we've already mentioned. We must add diligent prayer if we're going to find that mercy and grace, which is necessary to hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. We should be thankful for the avenue of prayer we have and for the great high priest who makes that possible. We need to make sure we're utilizing, again, the opportunities we have to come boldly to the throne of grace. For our last section tonight, we're going to flip over to the book of James. This book that we are studying currently on our Wednesday night services, and I'm jumping ahead a couple of chapters from where we are, we're going to look at James chapter 5, verses 13 through 18, and I'll read those. The Bible says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing songs. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with the oil uh, in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if you have committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain in the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again that the heavens give rain, and the earth produced its fruit. As is common, I think, with many New Testament epistles, as the writers draw their letters to a close, it seems like they try and uh, get as many ideas in at the end as possible. And that, of course, uh, is no different uh, here in the book of James. Here we find various commands and exhortations, 
And uh, we find a call to both prayer and to praise with, uh, with guidance as we do uh, what those things are that we do. In times of suffering, he tells us to pray. So what kind of suffering is James referring to here? The word used refers to the suffering really of any kind, of any type of suffering. Sickness, bereavement, disappointment, uh, perhaps persecutions, perhaps loss of health. And of course, James, in a few verses, deals with sickness specifically. What are those things that we should pray for? Well, for the removal of the suffering. If we are suffering, let's pray that we, uh, our, our, the suffering is removed from our lives. Uh, if, if it's in the Lord's will, of course, as we've talked about, for the strength to endure the suffering, if it is the Lord's will, uh, for the strength that, that we are uh, given once we overcome those sufferings is perhaps something that we can't see, but that God can see. God may not always remove the source of the suffering, and that's important for us to understand, but he will help us to endure it. There's no promise that God says if you pray for the removal of a suffering, that the suffering will be gone. But there is a promise that God will help us through the suffering. And as we know from our study in the first, uh, first chapter of the book of James, one thing that we gain from enduring trials and sufferings is patience. And as we grow older and as we endure more things and we gain more patience, well, that helps us to live our Christian life, doesn't it? For whom should we pray? Well, certainly for ourselves, but also for others. But also we can do, uh, we can, um, also for those who may be a, the source of suffering. Maybe pray for those, if, if individuals are the source of suffering. Pray for our enemies as Jesus taught. Uh, doing this can greatly help to endure any suffering. And prayer is always a way to help us get through it. And I think uh, prayer uh, is one of the greatest tools we have as Christians, especially when enduring trials. Because that means that when we pray to God, and he will help us through those things if it's in his will. And, and that is a, a blessing that no one in the world has, and no one in the world has been promised, save God's people. He also says in times of cheer or cheerful, uh, let us sing praises. The word cheerful here denotes a pleasantness or agreeableness. It suggests a state of mind that is free from trouble. It's the opposite of affliction. It's really when, when we're happy. When we're happy, in such a state of happiness, one should sing. For singing praises is becoming of God's people. Consider the attitude of David. Well, if you look at Psalms chapter 92, 96, 101, 111, 113, 146, 147, and 149, we find many examples of the songs of David. David was a man after God's own heart, so shouldn't we be as well? Singing praises has the power to make a good situation even better. When we sing with our hearts to the Lord uh, and we are cheerful, it makes that situation that we're in in our lives even better. So when we're cheerful, we ought to sing. And when we are suffering, we ought to pray. In times of sickness, he says, let us pray. Uh, this passage can really go in a couple of ways, so I'm going to talk about both of them. Questions abound concerning this passage. Is the sickness that of a physical or a spiritual nature? Is the anointing with oil, uh, is it really for medicinal purposes or is it more of symbolic purposes? Is the healing through providential means or miraculous? Is the healing spiritual or physical? Well, how do we know? Well, let's look at all of them and hopefully we'll be able to draw our own conclusion. 
First, I believe that the, the sickness and the healing in this passage is physical. Um, though spiritual needs are taken into consideration, I believe. Uh, this is in view of the phrase, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. And that phrase implies that the sickness is physical, though it may be accompanied by a spiritual sickness as well. And I think it can go uh, either way. And I think it's applicable in our lives either way. Um, uh, but if the conditional if, as said there, uh, makes, it, uh, um, uh, makes it clear that the illness may not be accompanied uh, by sin, which is true, well, then that would mean that the illness is probably not spiritual, but most likely physical. But again, I believe that it can go either way uh, when we make the application to our lives. So with the assumption that the, phys uh, that the uh, physical illness is being discussed, there are really two alternatives, I believe. This passage refers to miraculous healing, and the elders were called because they possessed the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's one alternative. The anointing with oil was symbolic if we go this route, which is representing of the influence of the Holy Spirit. Um, or this passage refers to providential healing, in which the elders were called because they most likely uh, were the righteous, most righteous of the, con of the congregation, because he says the effective fervent prayer of the righteous man avails much. Uh, the anointing with the oil was medi uh, medicinal in this, going down this lane, uh, and was commonly practiced in those days. And that is true. In those times, they didn't have the hospitals and medical care that we have today. So many times the anointing of oil was perhaps to make those who were sick physically more comfortable in their situation, and was commonly used as a medicinal, in medicinal ways. So whichever way you, you want this passage to go, as far as the healing is miraculous or the healing is, is more providential, uh, it's applicable, applicable both ways, I believe. But, uh, so common practices of the day were, were, were as I said, medicinal uh, uh, anointing with oil. And I lean towards the latter, I believe, that the healing is that of providential nature. The first explanation, uh, if you assume that the elders were the ones that had the spiritual gift of healing, well, then you assume that every elder in that time had that spiritual gift. And that wasn't a requirement of elders. So perhaps that wasn't, that's not necessarily the case because we have no example of it in the New Testament. And the qualifications that I said for elders did not require the gift of healing. So in illustrating the effectiveness of prayer, James uses an example of God providentially answering prayers, and he uses the example of Elijah. When Elijah prayed that there would be no rain, and this is back in 1 Kings chapter 18, God used nature itself as a way to answer Elijah's prayer. God stopped rain for some over three years. Uh, I'll check, make sure that's accurate back in my notes. But when there was no rain, what's most interesting about that is that there was no rain and there was no dew. When God stopped the water, he stopped the water. And he used nature as his means of answering Elijah's prayer. Then when Elijah, after that confrontation with the, the uh, uh, worshipers of Baal up on Mar Mount Carmel, after that went the way it went and God showed that he was the true God, and the children of Israel then believed, Elijah once again prayed to God for rain, and he gave that rain again using nature. So I believe because of this example is one of a providential nature, so is the healing. But as I said, uh, by no means can we rule out the healing uh, of a miraculous nature uh, 
uh, in, this, in this passage of Scripture. So with this understanding, uh, or more or less, let's go ahead and make an application. In times of physical sickness, we have to call for the righteous, or elders if it's applicable. You want the prayers of the righteous working on your behalf. You were to notice you're to call for them and not wait for them to call you. I find that interesting in this passage that when you want someone to pray for you, when you're seeking the prayers of the righteous, well, you have to do something. You have to ask for it. You can't just expect those uh, uh, elders, if it's applicable in the congregation, or those who are righteous in the, in the congregation, you can't just expect them to know what your needs are. If you have need, you must ask for it. Uh, uh, have those members of the congregation pray with you, praying in faith, praying with, fervent, uh, with a, f a fervent prayer. And uh, they should not just pray, but see also after the appropriate medical needs. We now live in a time where the medical field has advanced to such a state where we can go to doctors, and when we are sick, they can help us. So I believe it is also the charge of the congregation to look after those who are sick, not only by praying for them, but by making sure they are getting the uh, uh, medical attention uh, that is appropriate for their situation. However one interprets this passage, again, as I said, there's no dispute over the main thrust of the passage, which is prayer and praise are special privileges for the Christian. And there is not a time in our life when we shouldn't be doing one or the other. We must be careful not to underestimate the importance of prayer, the power of prayer, but to truly benefit from uh, either of these two spiritual exercises, we of course have to be in, a in the right relationship with God. How can we expect God to hear our prayers or our songs if we're not right with him, if there's something that's standing between us? Uh, he that turneth away his ear from the hearing of the law, even his prayer shall be abomination. That's Proverbs 28 and verse 9. And being a doer of God's will, uh, uh, Matthew 7, chapter 21 says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of the Father which is in heaven. So in, in every application of, of uh, these three separate passages of Scripture, we find evidence that in order for our prayers to be heard, we must know the will of God. We must pray that the things in our lives happen in accordance to the will of God. We have to know the will of God, and it has to be applied in our lives, and we have to follow it. And I think that's one of the most applications that I want us to understand this evening, is that prayer isn't something that's just happenstance. It's not something that's so... Uh, it's, it's not something that should be made uh, into a novelty, Prayer is, is a tool we have to endure trials and to help those who are in need. And to avail ourselves to this privilege, we have to make sure that we're living right. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.